So I failed to address two things uh, when I got up here earlier. The first is that, one, I broke my arm because of best week ever, okay? I just want to make that clear. I was being young, uh, I mean, not dumb, excuse me, thinking I was young, and I wrote about that Friday, I think, actually, and uh, I, I was racing a kid and forgot that the finish line is a foot away from a cinder block wall, and I ran and put one hand up and broke it um, pretty good all the way through. So my radius is broken. I get to sport this guy for at least four, probably six, maybe even eight weeks. So uh, we will see how that goes. The second thing is, I know we have some of the families from Vacation Bible, you know, from Best Week Ever coming in. We will show that video again to make sure everybody gets to see it at the very end uh, for those that want to see it because it was really the best week ever. So, um, as we start this morning, I want to read a verse, and today's uh, lesson is really going to tie into what our kids learned this week, at best week ever, but the verse is this. Before it goes on the screen, I want you just to listen, and then Josh will put it on the screen. I'm going to read it twice for you. It says this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Josh, throw that on the screen for him now. In chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 34, it says this, And all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let me pray for us this morning as we try to understand that passage. God, teach us today. Teach us to be people who want to follow you, who understand who you are, and who understand how great you are. And may we not be simply people that beg you to leave when you step on our toes and when you invade our space. So Lord, teach us now what it is to follow you and how great it is. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. As I said this week, we had the best week ever. Uh, We came up with that name six weeks ago and hoped to live up to it, and it was great. And what was awesome was getting to teach the students. So if you saw in the video, one of my roles was to, to teach the Bible story, and it was amazing to sit down and to, uh, to, to share with students about how great this Jesus guy is that was coming to Jerusalem. See, we pretended to be in Jerusalem all day in the mornings. And so we wore funny clothes, and we had a marketplace, and we did all of these sort of things. And, and, and while I was teaching them, I was telling them about this Jesus guy, and, and we started on Monday with the triumphal entry, Jesus showing up in Jerusalem. And as Jesus came to Jerusalem, there was this makeshift red carpet laid out for him. It wasn't a fancy red carpet, no. It was palm branches and cloaks as Jesus rode on a donkey. And this king that everybody shouted, Hosanna! And and we remember what Hosanna means, right? Hosanna means what? You got it, Shoria. I knew he would know it. I knew it. And so it meant save us. And so all these people are bowing down, save us, Jesus. But soon, this king that they were celebrating, they then decide to crucify. And how do we get from celebrating to crucifying? 
that's not an easy concept for five to ten-year-olds to understand because Jesus is the good guy that we love, that loves us, that shows us God's love. And he is going to have to die. That's really where we sat. And so this morning, it's a really interesting chapter in chapter 8 of Matthew because they go from celebrating Jesus to wanting to leave him. And so how in the world does that happen? See, when we look at the Bible, we see all the time things that just don't make sense. We have Adam and Eve. They have all of the Garden of Eden to eat, and yet the one thing they want is the one thing that is forbidden. We have Noah, who spends years building this massive boat, and not one of his friends, not one of his, uh, his neighbors goes, well, you're spending your whole life focused on that. Maybe I should consider that as valuable for me. But we also look at those that interact with Jesus. It's not just the Old Testament folks that go, I don't get it. But Jesus was teaching in Nazareth, proclaiming liberty and good news, and saying, I am the one sent to proclaim this and to set you free. And you know what happens in Matthew 4, 28? It says they try to corner Jesus, they back him up to a cliff, and they try to throw him off the cliff to kill him. How do people miss it? The religious leaders miss it when he's giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, when he's allowing the lame to walk. This rich young ruler who understands the Bible yet misses out what Jesus is really talking about walks away sad. The parents of a blind man go, well, I'm glad you healed my son, but I'm not going to speak up that I know you. You have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you have these crowds that have seen the miraculous things happen, and yet they walk away. John 6, verse 66, is probably the saddest verse in the whole Bible, and I think it's aptly numbered, 666. It says this, it says, after this, Jesus had been teaching some hard words, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. As we read those words and hear those stories, we are perplexed. How could people see Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and not believe? How could they miss it? Why would they turn away? It's kind of like when we watch those movies or shows and you know from the first scene that there's this tension between these two characters and you just root for them to express their love for one another and you know in episode one that they need to get together but the writers of this show drag it out for seven seasons and 24 episodes every season and you're like, just tell them what you think of them. And it never happens. You're going, how in the world could you not know this? Can you not fathom this? And yet, don't we do the same thing? In our pride or nervousness or blindness, we walk away and go, well, Jesus, I don't really know if I trust you or believe you or want to follow you. So let's see how we can get to that verse of chapter 8, verse 34. And they begged Jesus to leave. So chapter 8 comes on the heels of Jesus preaching the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the best teaching ever recorded uh, for our reading. Jesus has taught on how we should live with our attitudes towards one another every day. Jesus has shared how we should view anger and lust and divorce. Jesus has taught about how we can, get, how we can trust Him in our anxiety. He, he has talked about how we should pray, how we are to fast. He's talked about how we are to spend money. He has covered all these topics. The people are enthralled. And you would think that then He would come down and they would be like, Hey, will you just sign my notes, Jesus? Like, you did such an amazing teaching. Can I get, a, can I get like a picture with you? At least a mental picture? They didn't know what 
pictures were back then. And so can, can like we record this in some way? Like, Jesus, that was awesome. You would think that he would be surrounded by all these fans. But instead, the first person Jesus, intera- Jesus interacts with is the person that nobody else in that crowd would have interacted with. Chapter 8, verse 2. This is how it all starts, that chapter. A leper comes to Jesus. Now, this leprosy is like the early days of COVID, all right? You are quarantined. You are not coming around me. You are going over there. I don't even want you to call me on the phone because I don't know what the 5G does, right? It could maybe convert all the way through this. And so these are these early days, like, you just stay away. We will come see you when we see you. And so a leper is sent out of their home, out of their family's life. They are sent to be quarantined, to be isolated, to be left alone outside the city. Nobody comes around them. People pass by them on the other side. And a leper is the first person to come up to Jesus, and he says this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This leper has no doubt that Jesus can. His only question is, will you? I wrote in my journal a few years ago when I was reading this passage. How many of my prayers start with, can you, Jesus, do this? A leper comes to Jesus and says, you can. I know you can. I trust you can. I believe you can. I wonder and worry and doubt, and this man goes, Jesus, I know you got this. The only question is, will you you fix me? Will you help me? Will you heal me? And immediately the leper is healed. Jesus continues on in chapter 8, and he moves on to Capernaum, and he once again interacts with the the last person we would think he would interact with. It starts in verse 6. It's this centurion. He is a, a Roman official or an officer over the military, and he comes up to Jesus, this man that not only is a Roman and a Gentile that we don't want to associate with, he's also a symbol of the oppression of the government that is wielded over us. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, what? Lord. Giving him a designation of highness and of royalty in a sense. Lord and power. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. What? Can you imagine how this centurion sees Jesus? This powerful man says, this Jesus guy can change my situation, can change my servant's life. He can end the suffering. He can change physiology and anatomy. He can work supernaturally. And he believes wholeheartedly Jesus can do it. Matthew paints the picture as if Jesus is like getting up to then go and to do this healing when the centurion says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. Come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. This man, this Gentile, he doesn't know the the Hebrew text. He doesn't understand all the intricacies of numbers and Deuteronomy. But he, he understands Jesus and he believes him. And he also understands power. He says, listen, he'll go on to explain. If I tell my men to do something, they do it. I don't have to worry or wonder. That's the power I wield. If I decree it, it is done. He says, Jesus, I'm looking at you as way more powerful than me. You don't need to get up. You don't need to walk over there. Just say it. Can you get in your head what he is saying? 
He is saying, Jesus, I believe you to do what is impossible. Heal my servant. Nothing else is working. But think about it. He ratchets up the impossibility. You don't even have to see him. You've never met him. You can just say it and it will happen. That is the faith that the centurion has in Jesus. Jesus marvels in verse 10 at this man's faith. It says, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found this much faith. That the impossible could happen in an impossible way. And that's what he believes. And in case you're wondering, verse 13, Jesus said, go, let it be done. As you have believed, your servant was healed in that moment. And then we end the first half of chapter 8 with this. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. The first half of chapter 8 of Matthew is going great. Jesus had a great sermon, showed his awesome power. How in the world do we get 18 verses later than begging him to leave? That's what I want to spend the last few minutes looking at. See, Jesus knows that as his fame grows, he's healed, he's fixing and all that, so do his fans. But Jesus wasn't coming to these areas to build a fan club for a miracle worker, for an insightful teacher. No, Jesus wants followers, not fans. Jesus wants followers who make him Lord, not fans who celebrate him when things go well. And the question I want you to wrestle through over the next 10 minutes as I speak is this. Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower? See, I think most of us in this room would grant that Jesus is something, right? He's insightful in some ways. He probably could do some miraculous things. Everybody probably in this room would say, Jesus is special. He seems like a great guy. He preached love. Those are all good things. All of us could at least be fans of his. My question is, are we followers of his? That was the question we spent all week asking kids. See, this last half of chapter 8, Jesus gets into the things that preachers who just want hands raised don't often preach about. Jesus is getting into the stuff that most so-called Christians didn't sign up for. See, they love the escape from hell card, but they don't really love the I live a different life aspect. This is the side of Jesus that says, yes, you are forgiven, but now we are to live in love towards him. So I want us to look into how do we struggle to follow Jesus and how do we move from being a fan to a follower. Verse 19, chapter 8 still, a scribe comes up to him. And he said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a great start. Jesus' response, not what we were expecting. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay. Verse 21. Another disciple said to him, a would-be disciple said to him, let me first go and bury my father. And he says, Jesus says in verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own. Fans, what we learn is, fans only want to follow when it's comfortable. Fans only want to be on Team Jesus when it's comfortable. Think about it. Most teams, when they have a lot of fans, it's because they are winning. Except the Cowboys. Um, So... 
Sorry about that. See, most of the time, your fans grow, right, as you do good. And and so everybody is a fan. I'm an Alabama fan from birth, okay? So don't even call me a bandwagon. We will fight, and I have a club. So... We, I've been a fan, but the amount of Alabama fans has skyrocketed all over because they win. See, Jesus understands that when things are easy, when life is comfortable, people are fans of that. But fans only want to follow when it's comfortable. And so when Jesus sees these men say, I want to follow you, he says, I just want to let you know. Life isn't easy following me. I don't have a plush home to go lay in. I'm not going to have a palace. I'm not going to have a kingdom. I'm not going to have all these great things. No. Following me is difficult. And what happens is they start laying out their terms. Let me go bury my dad. Now, it could be that his dad just died, but a lot of people assume that what really is happening is that his dad He wants to wait till his dad dies. His dad may be in fine health. He may have a few years left. There's a confusion there of, well, let me get through this. When I finish my career, when I make this amount of money, when I get to this place, when I get this home, then I will follow you, Jesus. See, we all have terms and conditions we make Jesus sign up for. So I was thinking back about this the other day, and when we were in seminary, uh, I was finishing up school and going to start looking for jobs, and I asked Carla, and I said, all right, where will you live? I'm a person that likes adventure. I would go anywhere, most well, anywhere that I would be able to eat, so that, like, limits us to America and Canada, Um, but, you know, like, I'm not adventurous with food, but we, I said, where would you go? And I knew I loved my wife in those years. I do. I knew it. But this moment made me fall in love with her even more. She said, I'll go anywhere the SEC is. For her to speak in geography terms in, the, in relation to football conferences, I mean, I knew I'd pick the right one at that point. And so that was a conversation probably 2011 or so. 2016, I get a phone call from a church in College Station, Texas. We had never lived that far from home. They were calling and offering a job to us that was 13 hours away from anybody we knew. And I said, Corlin, remember, Texas A&M joined the SEC like four years ago, so this fits within your region, right? She said, I have one more term and condition. Now, of course, she was praying through this and their spirituality, and we're looking for the discernment of God, but she said, I have one more condition, Jordan. Do they have a (laughs) Chick-fil-A? So we Google mapped it. They had three. We were safe. So we, uh, we packed up our bags, left Georgia, and moved. We all have those things, right? These terms and conditions. The problem is we present our terms and conditions to Jesus, and he says, I'm not signing those, but you sign mine. You agree to mine. You agree to what I am calling you to, not me agreeing to you. See, these men wanted comfort, a place to sleep, a place to live their last few years, months, or decades with their father. And don't we do the same thing? Jesus, we'll follow you as long as it's going to be comfortable, as long as it's going to send us to the suburbs, as long as it's going to feed our family every day, as long as it's going to keep us safe, as long as it's going to make us happy, as long as it's going to give us two weeks of vacation, as long as da 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 I'll follow you then, Jesus. 
It's interesting, verse 23, he's had these conversations with these would-be disciples. Verse 23, what does it say? It says this, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Honestly, it could say only his disciples followed him. He was talking to a massive crowd, and then 12 people actually get on the boat and go where he's going. There's a lot of people that were fans of Jesus when it was comfortable. Then they start hearing what it takes. They start hearing that he wants to be the Lord of their whole life, not just a part of their life. Fans only follow when it is comfortable. Fans only want to follow when it's safe. That boat ride's actually interesting. Chapter 8, there's a boat ride. The disciples are going across the, the lake. They're experienced fishermen, many of them. They fish every day, so they're on boats all the time. And they start freaking out because a storm that they have never seen in their life hits upon them, and they start fearing for their lives. That's another thing it tells us about fans. Fans only want to follow Jesus when it is safe. See, we like following Jesus in the calm and the blessings, but what about when the storms of life surround us, when the strikes of lightning are all too close, when the thunder rattles us to our core, when the waves are pounding against what we thought was going to hold us secure, we begin to doubt and to wonder and to question and to worry and go, should I be looking for another answer for something else greater or more powerful or more able to handle this situation? Because Jesus, you don't seem like enough right now. That's what fans say. See, we want to follow Jesus when it is celebrated to follow him, not when it is chastised. We want to follow him when he sends us to the suburbs of Dallas to cush jobs with healthy kids and loving spouses. We like following Jesus, and sometimes we think that's what we signed up for when we gave him our life. But what happens when he says, I want you to move to an underserved or an under-resourced area of town because I need you to be the light there? What happens when he says, I want your kid to go to that school? Yeah, it's the neighborhood school. And yeah, it's not as good on great schools as the school that you want to send them to, but this is where they need to be a light. What happens when he says, hey, I know you love that job because of what it pays, but, but I really have a greater purpose for you, and yeah, it's going to cause some sacrifices, but this is where I want to use you. Do we say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you there when we have to bring into question, well, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to handle that? How am I going to get through these things? What happens when Jesus says, I want you to pick up and go? Oftentimes we like to say, here I am, send me, Jesus, to the American dream so that life is good. But God doesn't promise us safety. He promises us a purpose and His presence and His power. Are you willing to follow? Fans only want to follow when it's safe, when the team's winning, when it's comfortable. All right, so how do we get to begging them to leave Jesus? I mean, begging Jesus to leave. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus has ridden the boat across. He lands the area of the Gerasenes. There's two men in Matthew's account, and the other accounts, there's just one guy. But these two men in Matthew's account are possessed by demons, so much so that they are a danger to themselves and a danger to others. We Actually, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about that. We, we see Jesus land in this spot, and they come rushing to Jesus. These men that are just probably bleeding and bloody, they have been sent out into a desolate area outside the city and the and kind of country land in these among rocks where nobody wants to be. There's no value there. They tried to chain them, but the chains don't hold them. And so these men come rushing up to Jesus, seeking healing. 
One thing I see here is Jesus doesn't avoid who we avoid. I love teaching the story of Zacchaeus to our kids this week. Because Zacchaeus was the ultimate bad guy. Nobody liked him. He stole from his family and his friends so that he could line his pockets. He was exceptionally rich. And Jesus sees him, knows his name, and shows him love. Jesus loves these men that nobody wants to be around. These men are possessed by demons, and he sends these demons into this herd of pigs. Mark will tell us in his gospel, it's about 2,000 pigs. The pigs then, these possessed pigs then, are rush off of a cliff. 2,000 pigs rush off a cliff and fall to their death. All in that moment. It says in verse 33, the herdsmen, they fled, they went to the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. I love that line. Especially what had happened to those guys. That they had been, their life had been changed, they had been healed, they had been cleansed. But do you know what the people care about way more? The townspeople care way more about what was lost than what was gained. 2,000 pigs lost was more valuable than two men's lives changed. Because their income, their livelihood, their security, their food lay at the foot of a cliff, dead, useless. That brings us to the last point. We only want to follow Jesus when it's free. Fans only follow Jesus when it's free. And Jesus following him is costly. He didn't come to make fans who cheer him on, but followers who go with him wherever he goes. That's why when Jesus is not given the keys to our life, our whole life, we're bound to beg him to leave when he starts trespassing on the things that we think are ours. If we don't give Jesus the keys to our whole life, say, here's my life, take and use it. We are bound to beg him to leave, to leave us alone, to go away, to stop telling us what to do, to be out of our life. We're bound to beg him to leave when he starts trespassing on the things we think are ours. Let me be very specific as to what those things could be. We beg Jesus to leave. When he begins to operate in the parts of our life that we wanted to keep to ourselves, when he interferes with your job, your workplace, the schools for your kid, the neighborhood you live in, the cars you drive, the clothes you wear, the trips you take, the savings that you set aside. We beg Jesus to leave. When he starts invading Monday through Friday, when we say, Jesus, we already give you Sunday. Let us handle it how we want to live, however we want to. When he steps into the things that we think are ours. Fans of Jesus beg him to leave when following Jesus is no longer easy or free or comfortable. So the question I ask again is this. Are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Fans want a savior. Hey, help me avoid hell. Followers call him Lord, ruling and reigning in their life. So I ask those questions as we end. Do you believe Jesus can, like the leper? Or are you always asking, can you do this? 
Do, do you believe that his word is more powerful to do than more than can think or imagine like that centurion? Or do you fear when the storms of life blow in? Are you forcing Jesus to agree to your terms and conditions in life? Are you willing to submit to his? Are you begging Jesus to leave? Because he's invading places you wanted to keep to yourself. Are you a fan of Jesus? Or are you a follower? At Vacation Bible Schools all around the country, they teach the ABCs of Christianity. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He was sent to this world, that He died for you, and that He rose again. And I think so many kids get that. The hard part is that C, that we commit. That we commit to Him as the Lord of our life. What was amazing, though, is teaching these kids this week is that they don't struggle to believe. And I don't think it's ignorance. I think they understand what sin has robbed you and I of. That childlike faith of why couldn't God? I asked him, I said, name something impossible. And we talked about jumping from this ground to touch that ceiling. And of course, a few of them said, well, I could probably do that. We then all in a group landed on that would be impossible. And at the end, when we were talking about Jesus can do impossible things, one of them looked at me and said, I bet Jesus could jump up and touch that ceiling. Because they think and know and believe that Jesus can. And we spend our days going, I don't know, Jesus, if you can or not. We we pray, well, Jesus, I don't know if you can fix this. I'm going to be honest with you. Since Tuesday, I have prayed. I haven't shared this with anybody. I have prayed, God, heal my hand in a miraculous way. I just, I want to, I want to be able to point to you in this. Not selfishly, but just as a way just to show your glory. It was really neat yesterday. I went to the orthopedic and I didn't want them to do extra x-rays, but they did. And so whatever. And I was like frustrated about that. And then the, the, Um, doctor came in and he said this. He said, I looked at your x-rays from the the ER. He said, if if that would have been the case, we would be doing surgery, but we took these extra x-rays. He said, you're not going to need surgery. He said, did the doctor manipulate it while you were at the ER? And I was like, what do you mean by manipulate? He was like, did he grab it and twist it and do all that? I said, no, thank goodness, no. (laughs) He said, I don't know how but it's healing back in a way that it was not broken on Tuesday. And it's been one of those realizations, guys. Why do I limit my God? I want to have the faith of those kiddos to believe. And that's what I want to commit my life to. Not something that, uh, yeah, he can kind of do a few things. No, I want to put my life and something that is powerful and great and can do impossible things in ways that are impossible. So that's the Jesus I want to offer you guys today. That's the Jesus who we talk about every Sunday. That's the Jesus who I'm trying to live my life following, and so many of his followers are in this room. And so if you are struggling going, I think I am a fan, I call you to be a follower of that Jesus. Let me pray for you.